Welcome to episode 167 of On The Schmooze. Let's do this. Welcome to On The Schmooze, the podcast that highlights talented people from different fields, explores how they built strong networks, and overcame challenges on their way to becoming successful leaders. Now here's your host, Robbie Samuels. What do you want for dinner? I asked my nearly four-year-old. Mac and cheese is his quick and enthusiastic reply. I repeat his order back to him and receive an affirmative response. I check one more time as I'm getting ready to make his meal. Four minutes later, I present him with the meal he requested and he screws up his face and says, I don't want mac and cheese. Parents everywhere will recognize this moment. It's just one example of the ways kids test our patience and push our buttons. Until I had children, I thought I had a decent amount of patience and empathy. Not nearly enough, it seems, to handle the antics of my children. I have found ways to temper my response at least the first dozen times or so, but then there's that moment when I respond more sharply than I had ever wanted to. It's in those moments that I feel myself being impatient with myself. I want to be better at this right away. I don't want there to be a learning curve. This feels too important to be learning on the job. I'm starting to realize the way to have more patience and empathy for my three-nager is to have more patience and empathy for myself. I can feel bad that I yelled, but having feelings about those feelings isn't very helpful and can get in the way of making greater progress. I also take lessons from other sources, like how AA would say, I need to take this one day at a time, or how WW says that every meal is a choice. Beating myself up about my past behavior isn't setting myself up to do better next time. In my best moments, which are more frequent of late, I recognize that he's just three and that his strong personality will serve him well when he gets older. I also deeply appreciate his snuggles, his kindness, and how cute he is when he says, excuse me, Papa, before launching into a story I can barely follow. Your challenge for this week, maybe you've been trying to change a behavior, whether that's been around work productivity, exercise, reading, family time, eating, or anything else. There are going to be times when it doesn't go so well. Acknowledge the misstep and think about how you can do better next time. Then take a moment to appreciate the progress you've made, even if it's just baby steps at first. Lastly, let it go and be kind to yourself. Give yourself the patience and empathy you'd give a good friend who was trying to make this kind of behavior change. Try this and let me know how it goes. Now, onto this week's show. Today's guest is known as the Pitch Whisperer because he helps sales teams become revenue rock stars. After hearing him speak, they know how to form an emotional connection and a compelling sales story with their clients. In his keynote speeches, he shares lessons learned from his award-winning sales career at Condé Nast. His TEDx talk, Be the Lifeguard of Your Own Life, has over a million views. He's the author of The Successful Pitch, Conversations About Going from Invisible to Investable, and recently released, Best-Selling Through Storytelling, The Essential Roadmap to Becoming a Revenue Rockstar. He is host of the Successful Pitch podcast heard in over 60 countries. His listeners love him because they know he has been in their shoes. He's also the co-founder and CMO of Quantum RE, a blockchain real estate company. Please join me in welcoming John Livesey. Hi, Robbie. Thanks for having me. 
John, thank you so much for joining us in your office in Los Angeles. It's a pleasure to have you here. Um, so as you know, this is a show about building great relationships and the context is leadership. So tell me, how do you define leadership and when did you realize you had the skills to lead? I think leadership is defined by someone who can rally people around a singular vision. And basically for me, leadership is the ability to tell stories and that pulls people in because they are buying into your vision because they understand the story. And I would say the first time I was aware of the power of storytelling was when I was working at an advertising agency shooting commercials for movies coming out on home video before DVD, before Netflix. And we had to take a two-hour story and make it a 30-second commercial and intrigue people enough to want to go watch the movie. And sometimes it would be a very different campaign than what had run theatrically because maybe the movie didn't do well theatrically, but we could still make it a bestseller at the blockbuster stores and that type of thing. So I realized that editing and what parts of a story you tell really combine to get people to say, oh, I want to do that. Then you start getting brand ambassadors, if you will, to become leaders who tell their friends who, and that influence of getting the right people to buy and promote whatever it is you're selling, whether it's go rent this movie, go buy this product, hire me as a keynote speaker. All of that has to do with storytelling. I love how you wove in uh, influencers um, because no one's actually brought that up, but we live in a world where influencers like formally and informally are all around us. Uh, now there are more and more brand ambassadors and it's not always super clear. <laughs> it should be um, when people are, are doing that. But yes, that, obviously that's a leadership style. Getting, you know, sharing a story about a vision and the people are sort of buying into that vision and then they're part of it. So before all of this, if you, if you would wind the clock back to high school, grade school, the playground, you know, were you the outgoing kid who like talked to everybody and everyone sort of knew you? But did you do like have any formal roles like running for office, team captain? What were you like? At one time I thought to myself, I wish I, I wonder if I could try to be shy and I couldn't. I did, and I'm like, I don't know what that would be like. Uh, let's see. I was on the swim team, uh, from about 10 years old on, which led to me to have a competitive swim career in high school and became a lifeguard. Hence the TEDx talk that you mentioned, about learning how to be the lifeguard of your own life. And I was also in the high school musicals. I was in the high school band. Um, so I was very involved in a lot of different, um, areas. And sometimes, you know, being, something athletic and being something creative didn't necessarily gel. It was usually a separate group of people, but um, that didn't bother me. I was interested in all kinds of things and, and participated that way. I actually really love that. You, you talk about the, this idea of being at multiple worlds. Um, similarly, I felt a little like a chameleon, like the ability to kind of blend in and hang out with different groups, but mm. also feeling like none of them are all of me and aware of the fact that I, I could do that, but I was also, you know, felt like there was more than what they could offer. 
And because right. I knew about these other groups and they were sort of very insular. So it sounds like because you're, you know, creative <laughs> and, and the sports teams probably weren't always hanging out. What's interesting now looking back on it, that everyone has a uniform. If you're a lifeguard, you definitely have a uniform. It's mirror sunglasses, zinc oxide, a whistle around your neck, the red swimsuit. If you're in the band, the marching band, you definitely have a uniform. And of course, if you're in theater and musical, you definitely have a costume slash uniform. So it's, uh, it's uh, a, different, a lot of different roles with a lot of different looks that um, you say, okay, now I'm doing this. And I think that kind of persona is important to know, uh, especially when you're talking about helping people build their confidence, that there are different aspects of our personalities. And when you tap into, um, this is who I am when I'm doing this. And I, I might be a little more aggressive, swimming fast than I would um, playing uh, you know, a character in a musical because different parts of my personality need to come out. So that also is part of leadership is the ability to be flexible and empathetic and be aware of where you are and what's the appropriate behavior. I love it. I love where you're taking us. So um, you have had an interesting and varied career to get yourself to where you are. You, you know, I think people see someone who's successful and they think that you just arrived here. They forget <laughs> the years and decades beforehand. What, where did you, where were your career start? Like what was the, what was the beginnings of you thinking that you were going to be on this trajectory? Well, first of all, I, looking as I was experiencing them, I thought, well, I've had three separate careers, none of which will intersect. And ironically they did. So that story is my sales career began uh, in Silicon Valley, selling multi-million dollar mainframe computers to the airline, the TRW, that would keep track of credit scores, uh, and learning how to sell against IBM, which was to sell it FUD, fear, uncertainty, and doubt. If you buy anything that's not IBM and it breaks, you're going to get fired because we're going to point the finger at the other vendor you brought in. And I was the other vendor, even though I had a product more uh, efficient and faster and less expensive, people were not buying. So I went... Oh, people don't buy information. They buy on psychological, emotional reasons and got training on that. Then I did that for a number of years. And um, then I worked for, as I mentioned, the advertising agency doing TV commercials for movies. And I loved that. Uh, and I just took to it like water. I'd been such a movie buff fan. It, it, I knew how to instinctively sell the commercials we had done for one studio to another studio to get hired. So I wasn't the expert at editing, but I had to be editing room to watch it and then present the rough cuts and sell that. And then I got into magazine sales at Condé Nast, which is GQ and Wired and Vanity Fair and Vogue and W and Arc Digest, several titles. And suddenly while selling ads in magazines, they said, no, there's this thing called the internet coming and we're going to have to have a website and our advertisers are going to have websites to sell clothes and cars on. Does anyone know anything about technology? They're like, oh, I do. And then a few years after that, they're like, you know, we're no longer going to just put fashion models on the cover of these fashion magazines. We're going to put in celebrities. Does anyone have any connections or background in the entertainment industry? Like, oh, I do. So all of those things suddenly dovetailed into um, having me be really successful at Condé Nast for 15 years. Um, then around 2008, there was the economy tanking. And luxury ads were crashing, and um, I, along with many other people in that industry, got laid off, and I had to reinvent myself. And a good friend of mine told the story of 
silent movie stars versus talkies. Because I was such a movie buff, I could relate to that. And he said, some actors made it from silent to talkies and some didn't. And you're going to have to decide if you're going to be one of those print salespeople that makes it to digital sales. And just that frame of reference, Robbie, really helped me embrace the disruption. And I learned how to sell digital ads, got a job at the Daily Beast, which was challenging to get because you didn't have a lot of experience. And then two years later, Condé Nast called me and said, we'd like to hire you back. And we're looking for someone who can sell print and digital now. We have a new editor. And I said, oh, well, if I'm coming back, I'm not coming back with any fear. Because I always had fear of being laid off and the magazine right. going out of business. I'm like, I already been laid off and thrived. So I said, okay. And that I was able to come up with a big idea that caused me to end up winning salesperson of the year. So that was my big life lesson of I'm the same person, whether I'm being laid off or winning this award. And that's what launched my speaking career, helping salespeople become storytellers and getting as many people as possible off the self-esteem roller coaster of only feeling good if things are going well and bad if they're not. When did you re- decide to, to go more into the, the entrepreneur side? When uh, was that? Five years ago, after I left Condé Nast, yeah. after winning Salesperson of the Year, I said, okay, um, now what? You know, I've sort of yeah. achieved the top. And I saw technology as being a really hot thing. And they had asked me to find startups to help them you either buy them or use their new technology because they didn't have time to be that agile. And I saw a startup after startup not knowing how to sell their product to get Condé Nast to want to use it. And I thought, oh, there's a problem I can solve. Tech people don't know how to sell to get customers, let alone how to get their startup funded. And so that started me on my own trajectory. And then the startups would say to me, well, I definitely want to hire you to help me with my pitch, but I also need introductions to investors. I don't know how to do that. And someone said, you know, if enough people tell you what they need and that they're willing to pay you, maybe you should figure out a way to do it. And someone said, how about if you started a podcast, you could start interviewing investors and then introduce them to people after they've, you know, it could be a combo offering. And I said, why don't I go to the moon? I don't know how to do a podcast. And and, uh, for me, I thought, all right, I'm afraid of something here. What is it? Because I had to put some faces on it. I'm like, well, at first, my first fear was fear of rejection. What if I ask someone to be on and they say, do you have any other episodes? How many downloads? Blah, blah, blah. You know, oh, you'll be the first. But I've been in sales long enough for me, Robbie, that the solution to this fear of rejection is to never reject yourself. Mm. You know, when I used to sell ads, I thought, oh, somebody else could have gotten that maybe. Or maybe they're right. Maybe this product's not as good as another product. And when you don't start rejecting yourself or what you're selling and don't take that no so personally, that's really a cure for that. In so that. In fundraising, because um, my background's fundraising and I've trained people on this, there's a phrase, mm. kick yourself out of the way and let the cause talk. <laughs> yes. And also, once the client says they want to buy, stop talking. <laughs> I've seen tech people after tech people say, would you like to be a client and use this software or whatever it is they're selling? And the person says, la, la, la. And then 20 minutes in, they're like, okay, I'll try it. And then they go, oh, but I still have two more features to show you. <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, yeah. So and I want to underscore a few of the things that you've already said, John, because it's been good stuff here. And one of the ones you said a little while ago was about the, the people who were silent movie and whether mm. they made it to talkies and that mindset of like, are you going to make it from print to digital? And I want to bring that up because we're, we're constantly now in a world of disruption. So again and again, we're going to have to ask ourselves that question. Are we going to 
you know, are we going to go from print to digital in whatever the new, like, I guess, yep. landscape is mm-hmm. um, and, and paying attention to that. And it's interesting because in the world of uh, entrepreneurs, it feels like everyone got like, oh, we all want to have these automated classes that we do nothing. Right? We were all sold on the idea that, and now it's shifting back where everyone's like, no, we actually really want the interaction and the value of that. And so are you going to, you know, transform your business to respond to that? Or are you going to like keep your like class that's evergreen and no one ever talks to you <laughs> um, and see how that goes? So there's, there was that. And I, I just, just the idea that you're, you're able to eventually bring all the things you love together was really great to hear because you don't, you don't expect it going in. And then you figured out who you could serve by paying attention, right? I think so often people build products and services and then try to bring them to the market and sell them. But you heard a need. You're like, that's a problem. Huh. I know how to solve that problem. Wow, a lot of people have that problem. And then they said, you know, we all have this other problem. Yes. <laughs> that I, actually problem. Don't know. I don't actually know how to solve that problem. And then someone finally said... Maybe you should work on that. And you know, podcasts. So how many years ago was your podcast launched? Five years. Yes. And our mutual friend, Judy Robin, it was my second guest. Oh, fantastic. Introducing me to investors in her network and everything. Everybody in the world that she knows. And then we actually worked together on Crack the Funding Code, which is her new book. And I have a chapter in there. So all of that came from the podcast. That's amazing. And the authority that the podcast then afforded you. Mm-hmm. Right to give you some credibility in a space. Oh, literally, people would call me and say, "All right, I need help with the pitch. Need help with funding." And I'd say, "Okay, here's some. This is how I help you with get a great pitch." And um, you know, look at episode six, seven, and eight. Those are three investors that I could introduce you to after you have a good hired me to get your pitch right because wow. they trust me to make sure that the pitch is good before they get an intro. And then you go to that problem of only one percent of pitches getting funded. And how do you get in that 1% club? And I'm solving that problem. Wow. Right. Just paying attention. Um, I've been thinking a lot about how we discover our ideal clients more than mm. we, like, look, it's not like we're looking for them, but it's more about paying attention because they're the folks already coming to you for advice, support, services. Sometimes we're not charging them. They're almost a hobby. <laughs> you know, like, wow, you have a beautiful garden. And like, you're, you spend like, every weekend helping everyone in your neighborhood build their gardens. <laughs> there could be a service in here that I could charge for. Yeah. yeah. My sister, you know, discovered her passion for organizing closets and offices and kitchens. And now it's a, it's a business for her. Right. Um, it's, you know, it just happens to be on trend now on Netflix. So, you know, find your passion. Um, the other thing I want to encourage people to do is look at the old way of doing something and see if that, works or doesn't work anymore. As you were saying, the way people are doing solo classes, people miss the interaction. For That's one of the big uh, things that caused me to write my book, Better Selling Through Storytelling, was the old way of selling is push information out. Just talk, 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 throw enough stuff on the wall and hope it sticks. And it doesn't work. And so the new way is to tell a story. Instead of pushing, you pull people in with the story they see themselves in the story and you no longer are burning yourself out or trying to push somebody into something. And right. that is what launched the success of the book 
and the speaking career because there's so many talk about problems to solve companies from healthcare to tech to food to you name it recruiters everybody that's selling something is doing it the old way and wondering why it's no longer working or it comes down between uh, one firm and two other companies for the final pitch and who's getting that sale because if you're in the final two or three of anything you can do the job whether it's a job to be hired or an architecture firm bidding to get a job or a recruitment firm bidding to be the one that you, you use on and on and on and they always hire the people who have the best story because stories are memorable and they have an emotional connection and we buy emotionally and back it up with logic a lot of people in the tech space don't understand that but once they do Mm-hmm. They with that instead of the left brain text stuff. It's really interesting because I've actually uh, remember learning that in the world of fundraising, if you provide someone with too much data yeah. um, about your charity, it actually lowers the amount they give if they give it all. Mm-hmm. Because then it's analytical. Yes. People want to hear a story of one person you've had and ideally who is just like them. And when they can yeah. see themselves in the story. And then yeah. they're on the journey with you. You know, the old way of closing a sale, selling real estate or something is, you want to buy the house. You just ask, you know, as Maslow said, the only tool in your toolbox is a hammer. You're looking for nails. You want to buy, you want to buy, you want to buy. Once you start telling stories, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, the family that lived here before and loved living in this home, they had two kids. They were one in three. And they watched their family grow up. And now the kids are gone. That's why they're selling the house. But this was the perfect house to raise a family. I see you have two kids. Is that what, you know, you know, they go, oh, my God, that's what we've been looking for. A place to call home for raise our children. The schools are great. You know, I told the story. And you, you just say, you know, does that sound like the kind of journey you'd like to go on with this house? And they're yeah. Oh, yes. Yeah, I'm, I'm ready. <laughs> you got me, John. <laughs> this yeah. is great. I want to know how, like what you're finding rewarding, I guess, about the work you're getting to do today. Like what's, mm. what's sort of standing out to you about what's possible now? Well, two things. Um, just, I mean, it's so hard to pick, narrow it down to two. One is nothing lights me up like standing in front of a crowd of hundreds of people in a ballroom who've been brought together for an annual sales meeting and are looking for me to kick off the meeting or close the meeting and give them some inspiration, some entertainment, and more importantly, some skills, i.e. storytelling, that are going to change how they interact with their clients and get people uh, and doing some workshops after the keynotes typically. So I love the feedback and and, um, making a difference that way. And then you were talking about silent movies versus talkies. I had to walk my own talk when the blockchain came on my radar a couple of years ago. My first reaction was, oh, God, one more thing. To do. And then I went, wait a minute. I'm telling everyone to get out of their comfort zone and get in the learning zone. I better take my own advice. And ironically, I now work at a startup myself using real estate, residential real estate, helping Quantum RE helps homeowners who have a lot of equity in their house but don't have any cash and don't want to take on more debt. You buy a fractional ownership of that give them cash in exchange for selling us, let's say 10% of the future value of the home. And there's no interest payments or loan. And then we're taking all that fractional ownership and putting it on the blockchain and allowing people to invest in that without people having to sell their homes. So the problem there is no liquidity. And now blockchain technology 
technology allows you to buy fractions of fractions, which is liquidity. And then you go, all right, well, that's the technical part of it. What's the message part of it? Equity freedom. The freedom to access your equity that you built up in your home without taking on debt and the freedom to invest in residential real estate without the headaches of being a landlord. Hmm. So again, it's the story. And then we start telling stories of you know, senior citizens that have paid off their house and they don't want to take on more debt and yet they want to convert their garage into an apartment and need money for plumbing so they can rent it out. This is a perfect solution for them. The entrepreneur That's- that went into credit card debt to fund her business and then realized she couldn't keep that up with the interest payments, but had her house enough equity in the house that we could give her some cash and she can pay off that high interest credit card. So those stories are what pull people in and go, oh, I understand what you're doing now versus how it's working with the blockchain. Right. I was going to say, like, if you get into the weeds around blockchain, you lose people, right? Mm-hmm. Um, unless the wonkiest of us will follow you, but the rest of us won't. Right. And then, but the, but the use cases, the examples, yeah. the stories... Mm-hmm. Makes people think, well, I know somebody who could really benefit from, from that. Exactly. And that's how you get and, to the girls. You know, how many people would love to invest in re- residential real estate, but don't have the money or the interest in being a landlord? Or even, you know, so this allows people to get into the real estate game and get some of those leverage benefits of homes going up. That's a whole nother level of social impact. Wow. That's so cool. And you were following your own advice in order to even learn about this, which is great. Exactly. I'm like, oh, now I have to learn about real estate and blockchain, but yeah. you know, through the marketing lens, I'm the marketing guy. Yeah. So I am constantly listening to all the real estate and the tech speak through the lens of why does anybody care about this and why is this newsworthy and what can the publicist do to you know, interview the homeowners, for example, or yeah. um, how do we pitch to get our startup funded, which we've done. Uh, we raised a million eight and now we're going for the second round. And of course, when you tell those stories and show visuals, you know, we created little gifs of someone's house being in an iceberg and saying, is, you know, is your asset, is your equity, your biggest asset frozen? And then we liquefy it and then the, it melts. So those visuals pull people in because it's partly a little story in a gif. It certainly is. So I, I think that you have people in your life from, it sounds like, several different sectors <laughs> you know Just like, like high school yes yeah, again right like you're not deep in one you have a, a fairly well-rounded deep connections in lots of different spheres and mm-hmm. i'm curious what your thoughts have been around cultivating and creating that network like do you, mm. do you have a philosophy as you were doing that was it happenstance is it is in retrospect does it make yeah. sense i i believe that Sources of money and opportunities can come to you from expected and unexpected sources if you keep putting out enough good to people. Let me give you an example. I put out to the world, my friends, I wanted to do a TEDx talk a few years ago. It seemed like a big goal and your ego's like, oh brother, who do you think you are? And yet I had overcame all that negative self-talk and said, I really feel like I could help people and that this message is worth sharing, which is the whole philosophy. Then someone in my network said, oh, I know the guy down in San Diego who puts on that TEDx down there, and he can maybe help you. And he said, oh, yes, I could help you craft a talk specifically for TEDx. I know a lot of the organization. I'll help you reply. And it took me a year and a half. I got a lot of no's. I had to walk my own talk about not taking rejection personally 
but I, it all is about what their theme is and does it fit your talk. So had it not been for my network, <clears throat> that would not have happened. And then through there, for the guy down in San Diego, he introduced me to my speaking agent, which caused my speaking career to take off. So it just continues on and on. <clears throat> Another friend said, um, I want to introduce you to this guy named Cal Fussman. He used to work in magazines as a journalist and you were selling ads that you guys might have a lot in common. Um, I said, oh, I love journalists. They're ultimate storytellers. And Cal said, you know, I need to sell myself now as a speaker and I don't really know how to do it. I said, oh, I can show you how to do it through storytelling. And he said, wow, that'd be amazing. He was in my son's in sales. I said, oh, I'm happy to talk to him. Um, next thing I know, he says, you know, I co-host a, a show with Larry King. Would you like to come on Larry King and my show? It's called Breakfast with Larry and promote your book. I said, what? So this uh, October, Cal and I are going to be doing a presentation at the Coca-Cola Summit on storytelling together. He's the expert in questions, and I'm the expert on converting that storytelling for marketers into business. So you can see how just one thing leads to another. You help, 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 and then suddenly they have something that, without expecting it. Yes. Yeah, I think that there's a couple of things there. One is, um, right, not being tied to outcome. Mm. So I think too many people want there to be a quicker result. Um, well, I, I, I applied to TEDx. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like I did the thing. Um, and, or I, you know, I asked one person for help and they couldn't help me, you know, like, and they kind of get dis uh, discouraged. But there's right. also the idea that, you know, when you were introduced to somebody, you offered, sure, I'll talk to you. Sure, I'll help you with this or this. Without, again, there's an abundance to that. Yeah. Um, without expecting anything immediately. You weren't like, oh, I'm going to do this because I know he's connected to Larry King. And if I do it in a certain way, then maybe, you know, because then it doesn't work. <laughs> right. I'm telling you, one of, the, one of the best ways to help someone is to offer to help their children, which I did for, you know, his son's 19 or 20. So that is a gold mine that a lot of people sure. don't think about, right? So you yeah. connect with people on that level. One of my clients that referred me for a speaking gig, I'm friends with his wife and the kids, but um, uh, he said, oh, you know, my son and daughter in, are in the musical Frozen and my wife did the sets. And I'm like, when is it I'm coming? Really? You betcha. Yeah. That's awesome. It's really good advice. It's, it's, a, it's a solid thing. I always think that by having, I, I realize that actually by getting married, you kind of become part of a club that you don't know existed. <laughs> Because married people kind of have a little nod to each other. Oh, yes. you're married. Oh, yes, that means something to me. And I don't know what it means exactly. But then having children, I, I, anybody who has ever had a child, <laughs> their child, their baby could be 32. Mm -hmm. And I can still bond with them around parenting in a way that like breaks through the ice. It's very interesting. Um, and, and I think that's true for anything you can bond around something personal. Like you find someone as a similar travel experience or a, a hobby, right? Like, so what yes. are some of the practices you have around, I guess you have your inner circle, but what about the second and third layers out, the people you meet annually at a conference or you worked with five years ago, but you're currently have no reason to kind of collaborate. How do you nurture and sustain those sort of weaker connections? My favorite way to nurture or sustain a relationship is to constantly be on the lookout for an article 
that relates to them that I think they might find interesting. So I spoke at Anthem Insurance a couple of years ago, and anytime I see something around healthcare, hospitals, insurance, I will send that article to her, and we stay in touch that way. Oh my God, that was so interesting. By the way, how are you? Cut to last week, uh, an executive search firm says, you know, we've seen your video, we love your book, we love what you said, um, you've talked to everybody here, everyone's a go, but we need to speak to your references. It's not enough to just see the quote because we're in the recruiting business and everyone we recommend for a job, we speak to their references. Whereas normally you're talking to healthcare or tech people, they don't actually take the time to call people you've spoken to before. So because of nurturing that third, fourth tier, whatever you want to call that client from a couple of years ago, I could ask her, would you mind talking to these people who are you know, just about ready to hire me for their speaking sales summit? That's amazing. And, and, and most people would not be doing that and then would find themselves in a bind. Mm. In a, in a, oh my God, now I need something for my network. And I haven't asked you or talked to you in two years. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so do you, do you put alerts to find these articles or are you actually coming across them organically? Like how, do you go searching for across, them? I, I am a big reader. I'm mm-hmm. looking at several websites, several papers online, New York yeah. Times, CNN, um, Daily Beast, Huffington Post, yeah. you know, on and on and on, whatever I can find good content that, um, you know, I read the business section, Wall Street Journal, all that stuff is a constant yeah. source of um, information. And then it's like any other muscle. You just train yourself to do or find something. And I'm the king of follow-up. If I say I'm going to do something, I do it. I was at an event the other night and somebody was talking about A Star is Born. I said, oh, you know, there's been four different versions. And there's a YouTube compilation that talk shows all four and how they've all, uh, you know, the last one was influenced and how they made trip. Really? So 1130 at night, I get home, I pull that link up and send it to them. Oh, I can't wait to watch this. Great seeing you. Thank you so much. Yeah. I have to say that follow, follow up, uh, following through on follow up. I don't know why people can't do it. Like, (laughs) and in some ways, because you're so good at it, it does make you stand out. Um, Most people, even when you hand them, like they, let's say they, they hand you their business card, they hand it to you with a, yeah, you're not really going to reach out. (laughs) So for me, I grab a pen and I jot a note on it in front of them. Okay. What was I going to send to you? Right, right, right. I make a note to myself. You know, I say, oh, I like to turn the corner of the cards that I don't want to lose track of. And I turn it in front of them. They're like, oh, I'm important. I go, no, it's really good. When I get home, I drop all my cards on the table. And those are the turn corners I know to pick up first. I already have time set aside, you know, my calendar to do this. And now they're like learning all these takeaways (laughs) from me, but also have a certain like, wow, he's going to actually do all these things that he just said to me. Yes. I think changes the dynamic in the moment. Well, I just got invited a week ago to something that I think you and your listeners might find interesting. Uh, it was someone I had on my podcast three years ago. His name is Guy Spear. He lives in Zurich. He's a fantastic uh, author of a book about having lunch with Warren Buffett from winning a charity auction and donating all this money. Um, and I've stayed in touch with him, and he's a master networker. And he was in town from Zurich, and he was inviting 12 people he knew that didn't know each other to a private dinner that he was paying for at a private room in a hotel in the Jeffersonian style, 
which means there's no cross-talking. He asks a question, and then everyone has two or three minutes to answer that question. You go around, and you listen to each person. And he said, part of the value is nobody listens anymore. They're so anxious about what they're going to say next. And so you feel like you're being listened to, and your brain can shut down going, I'm going to have my turn to talk, so I can just listen. I I have to say, this is so interesting to me. I host a monthly dinner in the Boston Mm. area. And it got started because I was part of an online group and I wanted to get more value from the group. So I figured some of these people live local. Now membership is from five different online groups that are members of five online groups. So like Dory Clark's Recognize Expert, uh, some NSA members. um, Mm -hmm. So different groups like that. And I, I host it mastermind style where each person shares an update and then everyone gives has a chance to sort of comment on and give advice to or support to that person. And I, you're right, like holding that space and knowing like you have a few minutes to give an update and we're not going to like talk over you. Right. Not, you know, if we're interrupting you, it's, it's ask for further clarity of what you're talking about, not to take the mic away from you. It's right. so rare. I think people are coming back just because they like don't get yes. that kind of in-person space. Yes. Well, check out the Jeffersonian format of hosting a dinner like that. There's yeah. very strict rules. You can't ask questions. It's just strictly listening. But what, at the wow. end of the meal, you're able to talk to anybody you want and ask further questions. Um, and one of the tips I learned that I had no idea, I'm sure you already know this, but for me it was new. Maybe it's new for somebody else listening. Is on LinkedIn, there's a little three icon buttons. And they said, oh, I don't need your business card. Just open your LinkedIn, click on this little three buttons, and your barcode, for lack of a better word, comes up on your phone. I'll scan it, and then we're can accept my invitation. Oh, my God, that was fantastic. I'll give you one better. There's now a way on LinkedIn to open up a nearby feature. Mm. And so everyone in the room opens, goes to that page. And if you're on that page, you're discoverable to wow. people nearby. And I so I went to a CC, C-suite network event with Jeffrey Hazlett when he was in Boston recently. And he, there was 40 people in the room. We all went to that page. And then everyone sent like requests to each other. And so I went, then I ran home to send follow-up messages. Because, <laughs> you know, all we did was just sort of click, 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 click. Yes. Um, I, was, I took screenshots of everyone who I, whose um, barcode I downloaded so I could have it to, as a reference. Great, because I was like, oh, no, they're all just going to go into my stream, and I, I need to know who they yeah. are. But, yes, it's fantastic, to, the idea of being able to layer on the online options with the in-person connection. What about when you're traveling? Like, you, you do a lot of speaking on the road and such. So mm. how do you leverage, I guess, your time? I know you're not a shy introvert. You're not hiding in your room probably very much, right? So, well, so do you organize things when you're out and about? Um, Judy Robinette, our friend again, who wrote how to be a power connector and crack the funding code in her first book, she always says, talk to strangers. And I tend to do that anyway, but I was on a flight to Boston to give a talk to blue cross and sitting across from me was this very well-dressed guy. And he was reading a book about called essentialism. And I, um, complimented. I said, I'd love to see people get dressed up to fly. And he said, Oh, thanks. And I said, that book looks interesting. Tell me about that. And he said, Oh, it's about doing less and saying no to more things, getting you to, you know, everything can't be a priority. I said, Oh, how great. And we had a nice little chat. And I said, 
And I went up to my, you know, overhead and pulled out a copy of my book. So I always travel with extra copies of my book. I said, would you like a copy of my book? I love to give people who love books, books. He goes, oh my God, what a nice gift. Yes, thank you. So that's an example. That's brilliant. And, and on the spot, but also it shows prepar- to do that, you had to be prepared. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can't be like, oh, it would have been nice if I had a book with me right now. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Take a couple books on the carry-on, yes. Yeah, that's, that's really brilliant. You must do that quite often in, in order to have that planned out well, your, already. Your, your book becomes your calling card. Yeah. I should do that more often. You know, I'm always trying to think about how to make sure people have it in their hands. And my book's related to speaking, to actually to uh, networking at conferences. And mm. so I love when I meet people who are on their way to a conference because I'm like, you can literally read this on the plane and have a better plan and just more purpose and intention than you mm-hmm. would have otherwise. Kind of like, you know, what, what is your pitch? Who are you? Yes, exactly. What are you offering? What's the value and all that good stuff? Do you ever host dinners of your, of your own, like when you're traveling or a home, salons, well, that kind of thing? Typically when I'm traveling, it's pretty intense because I'm in and out. You know, I'll come in the night before, um, the next morning I either open the keynote and then do some workshops and fly home, or I'm involved with this event maybe a couple of days and they're hosting dinners. And it's all about them. It's not about me. Um, I do um, like to take people out to restaurants because I'm not someone who enjoys cooking. Nobody wants to eat what I cook. So I love connecting people. And when I, like just even a a brunch the other day, um, uh, I'll just say one or two interesting things about each guest and then let them go, oh, tell me more. And then I look around the table and everyone's talking to each other. I've done my job. Yeah, that's a great host technique too. That's why actually uh, I love talking to introverts about hosting dinners because mm. I help them realize this is a Dory Clark actually uh-huh. uh, technique. You know, she moved to New York, didn't know anyone, and hosted uh, two dinners a month for I don't even know how long, um, well over a year. And that was how she, she was building her network as opposed to six nights a week. That's what you and I would have done go to everything. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> and she was like, "No, I'm not going to do that." So I just think, like, you know, gathering people, giving them a little starting off point, and then letting them come take it from there. Right. But again, it's, you have to do your homework. You have to know something interesting about that person. Yeah, uh, and that what makes it, them unique. Um, I'm, I remember introducing my friend Rebecca to my friend Brooke. I said, "One of the things I love about Rebecca is she has a sign over her desk as an entrepreneur selling." things uh, to busy moms on Amazon. She's an expert at importing stuff and um, how to use Amazon to get ranked in the top of the page. Uh, But her why is I want to make enough money that my husband can quit his job if he wants to. And Brooke was like, what? Oh my God, a woman doing that and not the other way around. And, you know, so they were off and running, right? So those are the kinds of little nuggets I know about her because I've been to her home um, to know that and then remember that and use that as a way to introduce her. Right. And of course, she appreciates the fact that you noticed that. So yes. it adds value to the relationship that you already have with her as well. Yes. And her husband's face lit up that I brought that up. And I don't know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Um, I would love to have the job where my wife stops working one day. <laughs> she uh, would love that too, to, to go follow her dreams and, and live passions that'd be amazing she's mm-hmm. she's helping me get the business started so it only there it's sort of like one person putting the other through business yes. school and vice versa <laughs> so that's a little bit what it feels like 
So um, what are the other sort of advice? I mean, you, you're all about like framing the story. Like what are some of the key things? I want to make sure we mm. impart some of the, the core knowledge that you have. So people want to follow up with you. What are some of the things that people would like, what are the questions people always ask you? I guess, you know, I'm, I've got a product. I know I need to bring it to the market. Here are the features. And you're like, uh, no, yes. <laughs> Don't tell me the well, features. One of the things everyone can do is figure out what your story of origin is. How did you come up with the idea for it? How did you come up with the name for your company? How did you ask me my own personal story of origin? Take people on that journey. People love it. That's how they emotionally connect to brands. Um, and then the other part of it is realizing that a story has structure to it. There's you know, four parts, the who, what, where, the problem you're solving, the solution, and then the resolution, the life after the solution. What's life like after using this product? Remember that you're not the hero of the story. Your client is. And you're like uh, Yoda in Star Wars or the Sherpa helping someone up the mountain. And when you have a story framed that way, that's when people remember it and connect to it. Right, because otherwise, if you're the hero in the story, then they can't be. Exactly. They don't see themselves in the story. It's nice, nice for story. you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's good, good for you. Yes. Yeah, and it doesn't really yeah. light up. You're like, but I told a story, and it's like- I told a story, nobody It's not can. about you. Yeah. <laughs> That's one of the things we want to take away from this. Uh, it's, it's not about you. So um, one of my favorite questions to ask John as we're wrapping up here is, if we're reconnecting a year from now, and I, I love that we're going to stay in touch, and I know that we have some online connections as well, but let's say we're connecting a year from now, and we are celebrating all of your successes over the last year. What are we going to be toasting? What, what, are, what are the things that you're looking forward to most in the year ahead? We're going to be toasting that I'm speaking on not just U.S. stages, but international stages, and not just to a few hundred people, but a few thousand people, and that uh, we're going to be toasting that... Quantum RE has um, expanded outside of California and has raised millions of dollars so that they can help uh, millions of homeowners get cash without going into debt. That's brilliant. It's such an amazing model. I'm sure people are like looking it up right now. And actually, how do you spell, I want to make sure people know, how do you spell Quantum RE? Q-U-A-N-T-M-R-E.com. Very cool. I, and what are the other ways people can find you and follow your work? Oh, my website has everything on about me with the speaking and the book and the TEDx talk, John Livesey, L-I-V as in Victor, E-S-A-Y. If you can't remember that, you can just Google the pitch whisper and the content will show up. And if I have a free gift for your listeners. If they want to text the word pitch, P-I-T-C-H, to 66866, I will um, send them a sneak peek of my book, Better Selling Through Storytelling. Oh, how fantastic is that? Thank you so much. I'll put all that in the show notes at ontheschmooze.com. John, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. I hope you enjoyed that interview with John. Such a pleasure to speak with him and learn about his leadership journey. What is your key takeaway from our conversation? Something you'll put into action this week that you'll benefit from for years to come. Share it resonate with you in the show notes at ontheschmooze.com. Look for episode 167. That's also where you'll find all the links and resources of today's show, as well as over 160 archived episodes on this Pinterest-inspired page. Reach out and let me know which were your favorite interviews. As may be evident from the way I approach my work, I believe relationships are the answer to any business challenge. 
Over the last few years, I've had the pleasure of coaching entrepreneurial women, guiding them through a maze of possibilities until they found the way they would be able to have a greater impact. I have room in my schedule for one, possibly two, one-on-one coaching clients. Send an email to Robbie at RobbieSamuels.com to start or continue a conversation about working together. If you enjoyed this episode with John, please share with your friends and don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss next week's show. Remember, subscribing is always free. Are you a fan? That's awesome. I'd love to read your review on Apple Podcasts. It's easy to find our page at itunes.ontheschmooze.com. Thank you in advance. I look forward to connecting again next week. We'll be interviewing another talent professional about their untold stories of leadership and networking. We'll explore their career challenges, work-life balance, and how they built a strong professional network on their way to becoming a successful leader. Until then, have an amazing week. Thanks for listening to On the Schmooze podcast at www.ontheschmooze.com. That's On the Schmooze, S-C-H-M-O-O-Z-E. This podcast is heard along the Marketing Podcast Network. For more great marketing podcasts, visit marketingpodcasts.net.